coming together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to Resist Bot Live. Good afternoon. It is Halloween, October 31st, 2021. I'm your moderator, Melanie Dion, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome. This week, we are talking about domestic violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We have had a lot in the news. Many people have been locked into the case of Gabby Petito, the young woman who went missing and ultimately was found murdered. But she's just one name in a sea of names that have been um, victims to domestic violence, be they man, woman, non-binary. It doesn't just have one face. And so this week we wanted to make sure that we tell those stories or we open the conversation about what is actually involved in domestic violence and what the next steps can and should be if you find yourself in a situation where you are vulnerable. Um, Resist Spot Live, as you know, we are every Sunday, 1 p.m. You can follow us. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube or Twitch. We will have a question and answer period today. So feel free to hit the comments and we will uh, reach out to you and hopefully have your question or comment shared with us during our discussion period. We're in the unique position because in since the pandemic, domestic violence has been called the shadow pandemic. With us being in close quarters, there are a lot more people who are exposed to this, and there has been an uptick in the instances of domestic violence. So to kick off our conversation, I'm going to bring up our regular panelists. We have Susan Stutz, Christine Liu, and Athena Filet with us this week. Welcome, welcome. Good morning, ladies. Morning. Hi, Mel. Hi, everybody. I'm glad to see all of you guys today. Welcome. Good morning. I know you're on the West Coast, Christine. Good afternoon, everybody else. (laughs) Um, We've got a heavy topic this week that touches all of us. So I wanted to uh, go around... I know um, we can start with you, Christine. Yeah, you know, um, the lens that I usually bring, but, you know, as I'm also single mom um, of a teenage son, so this, you know, we try to do our best as parents. And as you were talking about this, a couple of things come to mind. One is for the immigrant community, you know, especially first generation, we often bring our cultures with us, right? That can be good. And also in cases like this, that cannot be good in the sense that um, oftentimes a lot of this is in silence. And um, the resources that we in the immigrant community see available for everyone else don't often feel available to us, whether it is a language barrier or again, cultural barrier. And so 
this month brings uh, that awareness to me that there are, especially, Mel, when you mentioned during the pandemic, you know, those of us who are in situations prior to the pandemic that were already at risk can only imagine what people are going through in silence. So I just wanted to be aware of that. But yeah, like from the mom lens too, like I said, as a single mom, you kind of wish when you're raising your son that you can raise them to be this upstanding person in society. But doing so also involves some kind of hard conversations, if you will, and being real with them. Um, Because now that he's a teenager, you know, these are the conversations that are even more important when you're influenced around you by your friends and peers. So that's what I'm thinking about right now with this topic. Thanks. I think it's a that's the go-to where we want to be protective as parents. I mean, I was I'm a single mom. I had two kids. I left a relationship because of domestic violence. So that to have those hard questions on both ends, it's it's very sobering to have to do that. Welcome, Athena. You're with us today. You're gonna help us through with the comments. Hi, yes, happy to be here. As always, Mel, thanks for having us. Christine, Susan, good to see you. This topic to me is very important because it just falls within this overall work that I feel very called to in terms of drawing attention to those who are marginalized and oppressed. I mean, the power struggles between um, circumstances of vulnerable peoples in this country is something important to me. And so as it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, it's just important to call out some of the structures and systems that continually continue to oppress and marginalize folks that are oftentimes not seen as either able to, quote unquote, lift themselves up from the bootstraps or just kind of deal with things in a a very public way. And so anything we can do to shed light on the ways that the structures and systems are failing people who are in um, abusive relationships and what we can do as the bot. Again, one of my favorite things about the bot and this podcast is our, our ability to actually shine light on people who are doing the work and to help others get involved and engaged in the, the struggle, whatever issue that struggle might be in, the, in this weekend. This is a very important one, and I know it's very uh, close to several people on the call, as well as many of our other users. So I'm, I'm glad we're taking the time to really unpack this a little bit. And again, almost just as importantly as educating, um, giving folks some uh, some next steps, some ways to get engaged, some ways to know about what can be done at this stage for, again, those of us who are not necessarily able to advocate for themselves or or fully access the uh, resources and assistance that they need. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Athena. And speaking of someone who's doing the work, we have our um, Susan Stutz, who is among other things, outside of being a phenomenal writer and, and a regular here, also works within family law and has a lot of intimate knowledge of how these, how these, how the system works for things like that. So Susan, we would love to hear from you on this topic. Hi, good morning, ladies. Um, It's nice to see you again. Like Mel said, I have worked within the legal system for the past 30 years in the family law area. I've seen how domestic violence has evolved over the last 30 years. And I just want to, I want to take a moment and just give you the, just the barest minimum background uh, with regard to domestic violence. One of the things that the colonists brought to the United States was English common law. And in the 1800s, and for some time after that, women and children were considered property of their husband. 
So any violence visited upon them by their husband or their father, it was perfectly acceptable for men to abuse their wives, to abuse the children in their homes. That mentality, I think, to some extent still exists today. It's getting better. It's not where it needs to be, but it's definitely getting better. I have seen in the 30 years that I've been working in the legal community how the domestic violence protection laws have evolved and how there are more avenues for protection for victims of domestic violence. And I would just like to say, you know, domestic violence affects about 10 million people every year. And that is 20 people per minute, every minute of the day, every day of the year. That is an epidemic, if you will, in and of itself. You know, that's huge. That's just massive to me. I I genuinely did not know that the numbers were quite so large. You know, and, and one of the things, too, that we have to look at is domestic violence doesn't just affect women. It's not women who are the only victims. Men are victims of domestic violence. Same-sex relationships have domestic violence within them as well. One in four women will experience severe physical abuse. One in seven men. It's a hugely underreported crime. So I would hazard a guess and say that those numbers are way larger than we could possibly imagine. And when you think about how many people don't recognize what they're experiencing as abuse, there was the show on Netflix made that a lot of people watched and resonated with. It was parts of it were hard for me to watch, not because it wasn't well written or well done, but because I identified too much with the idea of, well, I haven't been hit yet. That sticks in the mind of a lot of people when they're enduring abuse. Well, I'm I'm not being hit. Is it abuse? So what we would like to do is introduce our special guest. We have family law attorney Linda Weixnar, who also is on the board of directors of Safe Space. Welcome, Linda. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like you to start a bit, if you don't mind, talking to us about the function of Safe Space what it provides. I know this is in the state of Florida, but if you could talk about that a bit, uh, we really appreciate it. Sure. I'd be happy to. So Safe Space has been around uh, since the late 80s, and it is sort of the premier entity on the Treasure Coast where I live and work. It covers three counties. There's a facility in Martin County, and we're reopening a facility in Indian River County for housing. The goal of Safe Space is to empower the safety and well-being of adult victims of domestic violence. Part of that includes some of the services that are offered are not just advocates for you as a as a parent or in certain situations, but they also offer attorney help with obtaining an injunction. They help people get to counselors. For those people who are not in housing, there are um, outpatient, for lack of a better word, non-resident events that are offered to help, including learning about how to manage your own finances, because that is a a part of domestic violence that almost nobody talks about is the fact that you're controlled to a large, not everybody, but there is an aspect of financial control. So a lot of people who get out of a situation where they've been in a domestic violence relationship, they don't really know how to make a budget or run a household or do anything like that because all they ever got was, you know, a little bit of money doled out. Here's your grocery money. Here's your gas money. 
uh, and that's it. So that's the goal of Safe Space is to help adult victims learn how to recognize what the abuse looks like, um, because many people, as you said, many people don't recognize that it is abuse. So the Florida statute talks about assault. So there doesn't actually have to be physical violence before it becomes abuse. Assault is a, a threat. And the injunction statute reads, if any person has a reasonable belief that they are uh, in danger of suffering from physical violence, then they can apply for an injunction. So Safe Space does help people with that role. Safe Space is also, uh, it's gender neutral. It does not discriminate on basis of anything, not, not race, not sex, not language issues. So the hotline is available all the time. They man a lot of calls in a day. They do have uh, translators available. For here, we have most of our, our language, non-English speakers speak Spanish or Creole or oh, I can't think of the name. It is a language that is spoken in Concabal, spoken in South America a lot. And we have a large population here that fits within those parameters. So they do have a place where they can reach out to and not have to worry about somebody will not understand their problem. Thank you so much. Um, from your capacity as a family law attorney, I know in, in the divorce can be very contentious. Child custody can be very contentious. And in that you have to deal with individuals where, where there are, where there is domestic violence, whether it's partners being violent toward each other or one partner being abusive toward another partner. In terms of since the pandemic, have you seen a noticeable increase of domestic violence in your personal experience? It, just in my practice, I have. I've seen people who come in and, and a lot of them don't recognize that it's a domestic violence situation. They don't think of it that way. They just think oh, so-and-so is is being is meaner because oh he's out of work so he his ego is damaged he's so he's just he's just mean to me we see a lot of more children and uh who have needed counseling services for example because they have been at home experiencing not not being hit themselves but witnessing or being at least privy to it goes on in the next room so the kids don't see it but uh, they can still hear. They know what's going on. Somebody comes out and has a, a black eye or bruise. Kids are not unaware. They're completely aware of what's going on around them. And um, so we do see, a, we've seen quite a bit. And even in coming in my practice, I've had more people come in my practice in the last, just in the last six or seven months who have already been to safe space or who need services from safe space. It's been the long held belief that when it, when removing yourself from a violent relationship, it's usually not the one time and you're out. It's usually multiple times. I believe the statistic I read that it can take someone up to seven times to leave. So you have, you've had to deal with, do you, have you had a lot of instances where you've had in, in the family law respect where someone has left and kind of abandoned the the divorce and, and, and come back? Not so many instances where they've abandoned their divorce. We I did have one where that happened, where they dismissed the divorce. And I had another case a couple of years ago, so it's not pandemic related at all, but it took her four times to file for divorce. So this is not even just she's trying to leave the home in the abusive situation. It took her four times filing for divorce before she was able to see that all the way um, to the end. And in situations where there are children, um, 
Can you speak a bit on the added difficulties that come along with the actual custody, with child custody, when you're dealing with injunctions or protective orders? Sure. So that's, you know, one of the big reasons why people, the first, first, second, third attempt to leave is often not successful is because there are children involved and there's, there's no financial support moving forward. People are concerned what's going to happen. Where am I going to go? The nice thing about safe space is that adult victims of domestic violence can, if they need to be a resident, they can bring their kids with them. Um, and safe space provides uh, food, shelter, clothing in that situation. When we're looking at kids in a domestic violence situation, whether when somebody's looking for an injunction, a lot of times what people uh, forget to do is they forget to include the child in the injunction. It's got they've got to be sort of named in the petition for injunction so the court is aware that they are in the picture and that something has to happen with them. And then. The question then arises, are the children themselves victims of domestic violence or is it a, an adult on adult domestic violence in such a way that the the perpetrator can continue to have access to the children? And if that's the case, then what do we do? Where do they meet? How do we exchange them, especially if somebody is living in a residential situation like a home at safe space? How do you exchange the children for time sharing without giving away the location of the confidential residence? We do see sometimes that domestic violence occurs while we're in the middle of a family law matter, a divorce matter. And then we've got to, again, figure out how are we going to, is all the paperwork in order for the person who's been abused to receive financial assistance from the abuser? If that's not there, the court can't rule on that at the time. So that puts a lot of people in a position even more so where they either have to rely on family or they have to look to someplace like safe space for assistance. So when it comes to that point, when someone has, you know, come to terms with the abuse and understanding what that means, it's it can be very overwhelming when you when you recognize that you have to make a drastic life change. So what are the first three things when your client is in a when is in a situation where they have identified that this situation is abusive? What are the first three things that you encourage them to do? Uh, the first thing that I encourage them to do is to get to safety. And whether that means they call safe space or they go stay in a hotel, which is not available to everybody. And, you know, if you don't have the financial means to do that, then you can't do that. But the first thing is get to safety. People often, they're very concerned. Well, what if I leave the children behind? What if I abandon the house? We just want people to get to safety because the court can sort out issues relating to children and issues relating to your home. But if you've been physically harmed, the court can't fix that. The second thing that we want people to do is uh, when you're preparing to leave, and not everybody has this luxury because sometimes you have to leave immediately. If you're preparing to leave, if that's a thought that you have, it's a very good idea to try and get some information about where the financial assets lie, if if they're are any because the thing is once you leave the home you're not very likely to be able to go back in um, unless the court gives you exclusive use and possession of the home and even if you leave the home and you go back in those things may have been removed when the abuser is removed from the premises or destroyed so you wouldn't have them but those are things that that we're going to need down as we move down the road as i mentioned a couple of minutes ago if you want financial assistance you have to have be able to file affidavit. And on the financial affidavit, the court wants to know what are the assets and where do they, where are they and what do they look like and how, what's, what's the perpetrator's income level and um, does the victim have an income level? And so we need to know all of those things. Uh, and the, the third thing really is that 
people have to have a good understanding of how the process works. Because if you don't really understand what your process is, it's harder for you to get help. So we want people to contact qualified attorneys. And that can be, like I said, Safe Space has a group. A lot of the family lawyers, if we don't practice primarily with domestic violence situations, we deal with it quite a bit. The statutes are are all available online. There are a lot of sites, Safe Space, the web, Safe Space website has some information about where to go, what to do, who to call. These things are all important because when you apply for an injunction, for example, even if the other party is served with the injunction, there's going to be a hearing on that within 15 days. And a lot of people are not prepared for that injunction hearing. Thank you so much. And I wanted to lead into that with a more open, open forum discussion with, with the entire panel where a lot of us are not prepared for what comes next. For example, for many people, some of the most violent attacks take place after they've already left. So it's not as though we skip into the sunset and, and you know, the abuse is all over. That person has not stopped being controlling. That person hasn't stopped being who they are just because you're no longer in the house or they no longer have immediate access. One of the things I'd like to do, because we, we definitely went into the family law aspect of it, but not all domestic violence cases fall under family law. Not all people are married, for example. There aren't, you know, there aren't always chances where there are children. When we think about the queer community itself, if we want to look at statistics, we, um, 26% of gay men, 37% of bisexual men, 44% lesbians, and 61% of bisexual women will either experience rape, physical violence, or, and or stalking by their intimate partner. And those are things that won't always, even though we do have more of our queer neighbors who are married, that still won't always fall under the um, under the same the same umbrella. And there are different aspects of of how that abuse can be exacted. For example, there's you know the threats of being outed. There are uh, abuses that have to do with body image, or you know just threats of being ostracized by the community when you're dealing with a group that's already marginalized and you're further marginalizing them in their community, you know, that is, that's a, this, the, the main aspect is still of control. So I wanted to bring Christine, sorry, in to talk a little more about, uh, cause you mentioned earlier how there's a, a silence that comes over, you know, in the, in, in the immigrant community, which is not only within that community, but it does have a unique aspect. And I hope you could talk about that just a little bit more. Well, I'm noticing the parallels because it's similar to what I mentioned before. Um, when you feel marginalized already, right? And in this case, even if resources are available to you, you don't think they are because maybe you don't speak the language that well, or maybe, you know, I think the recurring fear in some of these communities is, and, and I think I heard that touched upon, what if it gets worse? Say you were able to call a hotline or there was one in your language. What next? I mean, it is already so difficult trying to acclimate yourself into a whole different country and culture. I think that in and of itself prevents a lot of people from getting help, which is very concerning. So I just noticed that there's definitely similarities in that. And Susan, when we talk about 
because you 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 brought up how it's not only an issue with women, but we've talked a lot about the Violence Against Women Act and and how this does, even though it's not only women, like there was the article that, you know, you mentioned one in three women. Would you like to talk a little bit more about how, you know, the expiration of the Violence Against Women Act and those things factor into our discussion today? Sure. The Violence Against Women Act is a decades-old piece of legislation, and um, I believe it first was implemented in 1994. It is a body of legislation that provides funding to various programs and resources that work against domestic violence. And every five years, it has to be reauthorized. It came back up for reauthorization this year, it passed the House in March of this year, and now it's just sitting with the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And, and as far as I can tell, there's been no action taken on it whatsoever. And, and you know, there's some add-ons in this new version. And um, with regard to gun ownership, that's one of the big ones. That legislation is sitting there. There's another piece of legislation as well that gets reauthorized, and it's the Family Violence Prevention and Services Improvement Act. And that actually just passed the House this past week. And so it went to the Senate on the 27th of this month. And no action's been taken yet in the Senate on this piece of legislation. And this act is another piece of legislation that provides funding, necessary funding. Um, so many of these agencies rely on donations and grants and federal funding or state funding. They don't have an income necessarily that supports them. So I encourage everybody who is watching this podcast, who's listening to this podcast, please reach out to your senators. These are vitally important pieces of legislation that work to protect millions, millions, 10 million people across the country every day. These programs are dedicated to their safety. You know, we also have a couple of petitions out there. If if you're not somebody that's, you know, comfortable with writing your own letter, we've got three different petitions out there. One of, two of them address the Violence Against Women's Act. And the third one is with regard to the Family Protection Act. So I encourage you to look those petitions up sign on to them, have them sent to your representatives. We need to protect every victim of domestic violence. And these pieces of legislation are a really good step in that direction in terms of providing funding. Another thing we, um, just to reflect on one of our uh, past guests, Phylissa Thompson, who brought up whenever we're discussing a social issue, there is always a, a part of it that is even more difficult for people with disabilities. When I looked up the statistics for people with intellectual disabilities, men with intellectual disabilities are 60% more likely to experience physical violence from their partner. Women are uh, somewhere over 30% more likely. So these are people with greater vulnerabilities who are being, you know, abused, misused. We have to make sure that we look at that as part of the conversation when not only uh, as citizens, but as someone who realizes there, e- even when we can go through the process, we have to realize that there are people for where this process, the slowing of this process 
is more urgent. I want to talk a bit about red flags and get back to you, Linda, in helping clients and people in general identify these red flags. We look at like jealousy, controlling behavior, isolation, how in the process of helping folks realize these things, how do you kind of help walk them through that for lack of a better term? So if I'm just speaking with somebody, a client in a consult or in a meeting, and they make a statement that says to me, oh gosh, this is a red flag for these kind of issues. I will discuss with them. These are the kinds of things that we look for. Do you feel like you're isolated? Do you feel like uh, you don't really even have access to your family anymore because your partner is against that? What is your visibility in the community? And as you were mentioning, you know, people who with disabilities have a lower visibility, not everybody, but by and large, there's a lower visibility in the community because there are certain barriers in the community to people getting uh, different places. And so what we want to look for are things like, you know, if somebody comes in and says, oh, well, you know, he just tells me that I'm worthless and nobody would want me anymore. Well, that's a red flag to me because then I know, you know, that there's a lot of of demeaning uh, behavior going on. If somebody says to me, I'm so scared that if I leave, I won't be able to see my children anymore, or he'll disappear with the children, or she'll disappear with the children, as the case may be, then we talk about what that looks like. But I do want to say that, uh, you know, um, I don't know if I can, so Safe Space puts out this pamphlet which talks about, and this is, it's good reading for anybody. It talks about what domestic violence looks like and that it's not just, uh, you know, somebody cold cocks you and you don't see it coming. If you feel you can't do anything right and believe you deserve to be mistreated, you are probably in some sort of abusive relationship. If your partner makes all the decisions, if you have to be careful what you say or do because you might anger your partner and then you don't know what's coming, if um, if your partner uses children or pets to control you or something that is precious to you, if you don't do what I say, uh, this is going to happen. Those are all red flags to us. Several years ago, we had a, a case where the client, had, she was just a woman of, of faith that was so important to her that he would say to her, and in her faith, divorce was frowned upon. And so the husband would say to her all the time, if you don't do what I say, if you don't let me have my way on this, I will divorce you. And so in that situation, she never considered that to be any kind of, of domestic abuse because there was no physicality involved, but it's the manipulation that is so difficult to take and to process and to understand that I don't deserve to be manipulated like this. I don't have to stand for this. When I hear those kinds of things, I do talk with people and I I always recommend that they look for a qualified counselor to speak to. Um, So people will say to me, oh, well, I have a pastor or I have good friends. And the problem with that is that those people are not trained to deal with the ins and outs of domestic violence and how to bolster a person's self-esteem. And bolster is not the word I look for, but uh, that I really want, but um, to help somebody realize that they don't need to remain in that situation. I I can relate to that. I just, from a personal level, I um, was very young in, in a religious community where divorce was frowned upon. And it, it was a very difficult thing. Just just accepting that what I was dealing with was abuse even before it became physical. And then what to do next? The shame that comes with that, I realized 
I personally isolated myself. I isolated myself because I didn't want people to know. I, I don't think I'm alone in that. And one of the reasons I'm saying that is because I don't, I know I'm not alone in being that way. People who survivors of domestic violence don't have don't have one look or one demeanor. It, uh, many people expect it to be some, you know, someone who is meek or or someone who has a um a more quiet personality. I was none of those things. And if you had told someone without my confirmation that I was in a situation like that, a lot of people would not have necessarily believed it. And so I say that because the shame that I dealt with was was a was a huge obstacle for me. And I think it's a huge obstacle for a lot of people in situations like that. So when you see those red flags, when you see the red flags like jealousy, controlling behavior, someone who barely wants you to go outside because of how they're going to react, someone who makes you responsible for how angry they do or do not get, it does, you don't have to be physically abused or you don't have to wait to be physically abused before you identify what it is. Um, I think Athena mentioned that we have a comment. Yes, we have a listener dialing in from Facebook, basically echoing what you just said, Mel. I think when you talk about red flags, Kristen specifically said that what's more helpful in understanding red flags is actually identifying red flags earlier in the relationship. So basically some of the exact words we use in terms of behavior that supports isolationism, jealousy, anger, silent treatment, all of those really happen later, are, are able to happen later in a relationship and really manifest as you know, stressors arise and relationships evolve. So thank you for amplifying and rehighlighting the fact that um, a lot of these, I, a lot of these things might be worth paying closer attention to earlier on in relationships. Well, if I could, I, I'd like to add to that, a, a red flag that you can see very early in a relationship is, and it's typically, it's uh, something that we see in men a lot. If you meet a guy and by the second date, he is talking about marriage and moving in together and exclusivity. I mean, you don't even know each other yet. So here's somebody and, and they never seem like terrible. They are very charming and so, you know, especially they're very good at focusing in on women who have self-esteem issues, who are looking for just, I just want somebody to love me. And they, at the very beginning, make you feel like you are really loved, like you are their world. And then, of course, the, the problem with that is that you don't, you don't know them. They don't even care to know you. You're just another person that they can control. So I have a daughter who is in her early 20s, and uh, I told her the whole time growing, I have a son too, but this is a little different from him. But, um, you know, I told her all the time, if somebody seems like they are that into you right at the beginning, that they are trying to keep you from your friends and trying to, to monopolize all of your time, that is a red flag. Most relationships where people meet and get married after three weeks don't work. Mostly you need to know your, who your partner is before you really get involved in a, in a relationship. And so in my practice, I don't see that so much, but I have seen it among my daughter's friends. And most of the time, it turns out that those relationships have not been good, healthy relationships um, for, for them to be in. But it's an education process. And one of the things that Safe Space does is we have advocates who will go out to uh, middle schools, in high schools and talk to children about 
they're not children. I mean, they're young adults, but we'll talk to them about what these situations look like and what you should be on the lookout for and what you can be on the lookout for in your friends. And that's very helpful because it does teach children younger that we don't expect necessarily to be living with somebody or married. It helps them recognize what the issues are and to prepare or to protect against it. I just wanted to pick up on what Mel said. You know, I think it's really important too that we do recognize that domestic violence crosses all barriers, every barrier. It crosses the financial barrier. You know, there's no set income to somebody who's going to be abused. There's no one face. There's no one race. There's no one culture, no one ethnicity. It, it affects everybody. And I think too, one of the things that we have to do is when, when an abuser shows you who they are, we have to believe that, you know, and, and recognize that when they abuse us and it often starts out so small, it seems it's just some small little comment or, you know, isolation tactic. And it's as somebody who has a loved one who was a victim of domestic violence, you know, it's, I remember thinking, this doesn't happen in my family. Why is this happening in my family? It, it crosses every line you can possibly think of. And there's so much like secrecy and myth that gets involved in it. Our our friend, Joe, Professor Buzzkill, he pointed out to us about the myth of the rule of thumb, which was the the old saying that it was okay, it was deemed as okay for a man to discipline his his wife or his children with or strike them with something as no as long as it was no bigger than a thumb, which not only was a myth, but it was a myth, he said, that was used to form the state of Mississippi. He said it was 1824 where the state of Mississippi formed policy around this to sort of to give men free reign at the time to basically abuse their families. So it's something that's like so many unfortunate things when it comes down to um, oppression gets kind of woven into the fabric of of what we know as society. And, and extricating ourselves from that has become difficult, but it's a it's a worthy and necessary uh, pursuit to to eradicate this because it's it's damaging our communities. I want to thank everybody for being a part of this conversation. Thank you so, so much, Linda. We really appreciate you this week. I want to give everyone a chance to tell us about what, what organization or petition or, or initiative has their attention this week before we say our final goodbyes. So, Linda, we can start with you. Well, I would encourage everybody who's listening to please reach out to your local your local safe space. It's probably not going to be called safe space in your area, but reach out to your local domestic violence agency. You can find them. You can contact the, the court to find out who that is. You can contact the police to find out who that is. But please reach out because as as Susan was mentioning earlier, so many of them are not funded by uh, or fully funded um, Safe Space has many partners in the community, and we're very lucky, but still we have to make sure that we look for fundraising opportunities wherever we can find them because there's so much more work to be done. And we want to make sure that if some form of funding goes away, there's a backup for that. So please reach out to your local domestic violence agency to see how you can help them, whether it's direct financial or whether they need clothes or they need food or they need advocates. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. Christine, over to you. You know, one thing I wanted to leave with was military families, right? In another era of my life, I was a Navy officer's wife and just for three and a half years, just peering into that whole structure. I think that's a whole other show in regards to this particular topic. So that is something that as as you all were talking, um, I was, you know, remembering. Uh, so just to be mindful of communities, there's so many different marginalized communities out there um, in certain scenarios that they don't feel like they have the full support because the whole system is uh, structured around a certain, I guess, a status quo, if you will. <laughs> and maybe that's another episode for another day, but thanks. Thanks so much, Christine. Athena? Hi, thank you. Um, things on my mind this week is it's an election week, so we have some important races taking place around the country. I'd like to just sort of highlight the work of two organizations that work to elect women, so Emily's List, Check them out and see what candidates they're supporting in your different elections around the country. And Justice Democrats, they're working to elect mission-driven progressive candidates. So be sure to vote if you can on Tuesday and visit those two organizations to learn more about some new elected leaders that could potentially be more representative of what your interests and needs are and look more like us um, in the halls of government. Thanks so much. And Susan... Hi, um, I have a couple of things I would just like to highlight for if you are a victim of domestic violence and you need information on how to go about applying for a protective order in your particular state, I encourage you to go on womanslaw.org, that's W-O-M-A-N-S-L-A-W.org, and um, you can look up the laws in your particular state. If, if you need more information on shelter or resources, resources, I encourage you to check out the National Hotline website, and that website is thehotline.org. There's a, a wealth of information on there and resources. Uh, I also ask you to visit our website, resist.bot, and go to our news tab. We have an article on domestic violence, and in there is are more resources for you to reach out to. And Finally, I would just like to say, you know, for people who leave these violent situations, violent homes, they often leave with the clothes on their backs. And so they need to be able to get back out into the workforce and get employment so that they can become self-supporting. And one of the things they need is clothing. And so there is an organization that's dressed for success. You can donate your gently used clothing to them, and they will pass it on to victims who are in their uh, shelters to help them get back into the community and and get employment so that they can be self-supporting. Thank you so much. The organization that I'd like to highlight this week is sisterspgh.org. One of the things that I was not able to mention or I that kind of slipped my mind to mention was Um, When I spoke of our queer communities, 50% of transgender people have experienced sexual violence alone, just sexual violence. Um, Sisters is run by a trans woman in Pittsburgh. The community is notoriously underserved and the work that they have been doing is phenomenal. So I would recommend that everyone, everyone learn more about all members of our community, especially the marginalized ones. And Sisters is a great place to start. So I want to thank everyone for joining us this week. 
We will be back next week with a conversation that has been on all of our minds, voting rights. So join us next Sunday at 1 p.m. If you want to learn more about ResistBot, go to resist.bot. You can learn more about ResistBot. You can learn more about volunteering or donating. Everyone on ResistBot today, we're all volunteers. So if you want to learn more and be a part of this movement, ResistBot, resist.bot. You can, as we mentioned before, you can like us on Facebook, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch. And the audio version of this week's show will be up, I believe, tomorrow. Last week I said Tuesday, but Monday. So listen to be. You can find us where all podcasts are. Download us, like us, subscribe to us. Feel free to give us a review. We love those. And thank you for joining us. Until next week. ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple. iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message ResistBot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating powerful public policy or voter turnout campaigns. And we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. ResistBot is a nonprofit social welfare company built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. Regular contributors include Melanie Dion, Athena Foulet, Susan Stutz, Dr. Joseph Kuhill, and Scott McTaggart. Thank you for listening.